Are you happy? Magic Seeds takes a good look at everyday challenges and gives solid advice on how to navigate through them, be it relationships, career, parenting, or just not feeling happy inside. I'm Dr. Adam Grise. And I'm Laura Grise. Please join us weekly to discuss everyday situations that seem to be getting in the way of feeling happy and peaceful. We'll provide magic seeds and a reliable roadmap for you to follow to stay on a healthy path for your life. Welcome back to Magic Seeds. This is a cool day today, Laura Grise. I think it's a cool day. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. (laughs) You beat me to it. What do we got today? Okay. Today is an extraordinary day. I have my big brother on today and Mike has just recently put out a book and is going to put out another book, but Mike is so much more than that. And I thought it would be really, really cool to have him on today just because I feel like we should be showcasing all the things that Mike does. I mean, he's just an extraordinary person. He's a renaissance man. He just is. And actually, I know you're on yet. I'm not going to introduce you yet, Mike, but I remember I'm going to go into a real quick story with you. You were actually run over twice by (laughs) a monster truck. Twice, not just once, but twice. And we could actually talk about that story as well today, but I said to Mike, wow, how do you do it? Because he was up and walking around and he was walking real slow and he had clamshell around his abdomen and walking around on crutches. And Mike, how do you do it? How are you walking on? His whole body was crushed. And he said, Laura, you can't keep a good man down. (laughs) (laughs) I think about it all the time. You can't keep a good man down. So if I run through something right now, I mean, I always find myself my entire life bragging about my brother because he really is extraordinary. But Mike was, he set up the first triage 9-11. And I think that's a really, really cool story in and of itself. And Mike will share that today because in the book that he just released, he actually talks about 9-11 and his experiences. He does, when there are natural disasters, he sets up triages there to go and help the people. All over the world. All over the world. And I mean, he's gone to Nepal. He's gone to Iraq. Let's introduce Mike. Let's get No, hold on. He's done invention because he's an orthopedic surgeon. So he's made a drill. He's invented a drill. He's invented something else, which he's going to tell us about. He started a nonprofit. He's written a couple of books. He's an ultra marathoner. Classic underachiever. He's a father of three, a (laughs) husband. Yeah, classic overachiever, I guess, if you want to call it that. So anyway, today we have my big brother, Michael Karch. Hey, Mike. (laughs) Adam, Laura, good morning. God, I hope I can live up to that. You do live up to it. Mike, you You already have. You could die today. I don't want that to happen, but you could die today and you'd still go down in history. When I married into the Karch family, (laughs) I remember Kim, Mike's wife, she pulled me aside and she's like, do you know what you're getting into right now? And I'm like, ah, I know. She's like, listen, all I can tell you is don't feel like you need to keep up with the Karch's. (laughs) She's like, just trust me, you're going to feel pressure. There's going to be pressure. And you just, do. You she's do. Like, don't try. It's honestly, the, the Karches, you guys are a bit insane compared to the rest of us. Like your energy and your motivation and your drive and you're just, there's no such thing as no. I think even more when you got injured, Mike flew across the country overnight, <laughs> showed up in the hospital and was like, you're walking again. Right? Yeah. Like, now you said I was laying in bed and they had already told me that I would never walk again. You said, Laura, this is going to be the hardest workout you've ever had in your life. Are you ready for it? I was like, yeah, I'm ready for it. <laughs> Let's start doing some push. Right? Let's go. <laughs> Unreal. Get it's out of real. your bed. <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, Mike, it's like when I'm working with people and they're just say 50 and you're over 50 at this point. 
Well over 50. You uh, are <laughs> like saying, like, at what point do you just start trusting? Like you can't fake it for 50 years. Like if you've been Mike Karch doing what you're doing, it's not like, gee, sure hope I can keep it up. Like this is you. This is just what you do. Mike's always been like this. Mike used to just doodle on a notebook when he was in junior high and high school. And it used to be like the most incredible art, but it was doodle. It was like as the teacher was teaching or he composed his own music and he was in. No, I'm just saying. I mean, this isn't just, I mean, you were born with this. So anyway, let's go. <laughs> I could tell oh, praise stories. Michael Karch. Listen, I'm just stoked that I'm on your show and happy to share whatever you want to talk about. And I've listened to a number of your podcasts and they're fantastic. I think they're just really helpful. Thanks, Mike. To a lot of people, a broad audience and kudos to you. So really nice job. Thanks, Mike. So the title of the book. The title of the book, Tangible Heroes. Yeah. And so tell us about what does that mean? Yeah. Tangible heroes. So what is it about that teacher or that coach from years ago who still is in your head, who still influences your decisions today? Or maybe that community whose ethical compass kind of guides you even from thousands of miles away. And this is what I call tangible heroes, people that you can touch, not superheroes, just normal people, everyday, ordinary individuals who have an extraordinary impact on those around them. And so what I started to do is really study them. What makes them different? How do they amplify their abilities and how do they create a lasting legacy? Because I think the world probably needs more tangible heroes today. And so what I did was I looked at the tangible heroes in my life, uh, teachers, coaches, innovators in business, surgeons, normal people that I watch, that there's something to learn from every person that we meet. And I started to weave my own narrative in with their narratives throughout the book. And how did they influence me? And what did I learn from them? And and then how can we take that even further? How can we take these lessons and amplify them to affect more people in a positive way? So in some ways, it's a personal development book. In some ways, it's a story. And so I've read, I spent a lot of time reading personal development books. It's probably my favorite genre of books to read, but they're in a sense, sometimes very cut and dry and almost formulaic. And they hone down on one thing, your habits or your time efficiency. And that's the entire book. And by the time you get halfway through the book, you got it. Okay. And so what I tried to do is maybe take the whole story of how do you self-optimize yourself first and weave these stories in, showing examples. And then how does that translate into a force multiplied effect? And so that's really what the book's about. That's awesome. That's really in line with what we do here. I know you talk about seasons and how to get the most out of life. And everything that my entire practice is based on is how do you get in touch with something that is true to your most inner being of what your purpose is? And then how do you structure that to optimize it? and then let it ride. And then whatever it produces, how do you use that effectively to move forward in life, to let go of the residue from it, extract the value? And then how do you bake that in to the next iteration? And it's kind of exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So I remember when Kim and I were a young couple, we just had Mia, our first daughter, and we got on an airplane and they made that announcement that they make all the time, but I had never paid attention to it. And they said, in the event of an emergency, Uh, the oxygen is going to drop off the ceiling. And if you have a small child traveling with you, put the oxygen on yourself first. And I didn't really align with that. I didn't agree with it. I remember that stuck out. Me too, Mike. Me too. I say it all the time. Right. I would not do that. I would put it on my child first. But in fact, they're actually right. I love my brother. They're right. Thank you. I like uh, new Mike. (laughs) 
Yeah, what they're saying is that you have to self-optimize your first before you can help others. And you yep. may be able to help others initially, but you can't sustain it. Exactly. And that's really one of the themes of the book is how do you sustain this higher level of yourself? And in order to do that, you have to self-optimize. You have to become efficient in time management. You have to hone down your habits. You have to find a purpose. If you can't find a purpose, you have to find micro-purposes. You have to be very, very self-aware of your strengths, your weaknesses, your threats. And so we go through SWOT analysis in the book. We spend some time on one of my favorite writers is Sun Tzu from The Art of War. And so we spend a lot of time on that. And then we go into, I really kind of started looking into this on a personal level right after 9-11, because 9-11 for me in many ways was a failure as it was for our entire country. And so I had to really take a step back and say, well, how can I do this better and over a longer sustained manner? And that's when I really started to get into this kind of personal development part of myself. Mike, when I hear you say that you are a failure, that absolutely blows my mind. That's something that I really, really struggle with all the time because I do, maybe it's a cartridge gene, I don't know, but I really try to do my best in the things that I really have a passion for. And when it doesn't work, like it takes me down a little bit. So can you please share? I would love to hear. I've never heard your 9-11 story. I've heard hearsay, right? But I've never actually heard your 9-11 story. And I would love to hear maybe even a little excerpt from your book about your experiences of 9-11 and what it was that you thought that you were a failure. Blows my mind. It was a tough couple of days. On the morning of September 11th, I was chief resident at Georgetown and Orthopedic Surgery. So I was in my seventh year of residency, which is after four years of medical school. So 11 years into training. And at that time, I was in charge of my own team. And we had a typical routine on Tuesdays. We, the OR started a little bit late on Tuesdays because it was an academic day. And so we did our academic conferences and then went and got some breakfast. And we were sweeping through the emergency room. I always did that to see who the players were in the emergency room before we went to the operating room. And I took my team through the emergency room and something was off. I could just tell immediately. And people were looking up at a TV and I didn't really catch why they were looking at the TV. And all of a sudden there was this massive boom. And I mean, it shook the building and that was the Pentagon. And so the Pentagon is just across the river from Georgetown. So it's really not that far away. And within a few seconds, if you will, somebody ran into the emergency room saying the Pentagon was just exploded. That's what they said. And expect 200 casualties in the next few minutes. And so all of a sudden you go into high alert as team leader and you try and organize your team and your brain is going a mile a minute trying to organize and and prepare for this. And what actually happened was we only received one patient. And so the emergency disaster plan in D.C. as it was on September 11th was that if the Capitol ever were to be attacked, and this probably came out of the JFK era, that the city bridges would shut down to protect the center of the city, the government. And if you look at a map of D.C., you'll see that virtually all the trauma centers in D.C. are on one side of the Potomac River and the Pentagon's on the other. And so if the Pentagon got hit, then all the bridges shut down. And so that actually happened. And so one victim made it across the bridge, was thrown into a car, and he was severely burned. And then we received no one else. And this was kind of, after 11 years of training, this was kind of my high voltage moment, if you will. And then the plug got pulled. And it was devastating to me that I couldn't help. And that all this was going on just literally a quarter mile away, but I couldn't get there. 
And so I did something that was really irrational in the midst of a national tragedy. I left the hospital and I went home and packed a backpack full of dressings and supplies, a sleeping bag, a stove, a headlamp. I jumped in a cab because the trains were shut down, took it to Baltimore and then caught the last train before they shut the trains down into New York. And my thought was this. My thought was that there was no way that I was going to be able to help with the Pentagon because I was shut off geographically and physically from it, even though it was a quarter mile away, but that I could go to New York. I had a number of friends who I had been in medical school with who were in surgical training there. I could go there and substitute them out because at that point, I understood fundamentally that this was going to be a long haul. And so I got to New York and I was directed towards Chelsea Pier, which is an ice rink in, in lower Manhattan. And at that point, obviously, it was mass chaos. And the ice rink was, they were planning on turning the ice rink into a morgue to put body parts out onto the rink. And I went to the bathroom. It was, if you could imagine a hockey rink, I went to the bathroom. And on the way to the bathroom, I saw a pair of fireman's pants and a jacket. I just remember that. And when I came back, they made an announcement that they needed physicians to go to the front. That's what they called it. They called it the front. But in order to go, you needed fire gear. And that is the only thing that I've ever stolen in my life. <laughs> For the record. <laughs> for the record that's a good and, thing to steal and, and so through a series of kind of random consequences i became one of the first three physicians on site at ground zero as emergency room physician a general surgeon and myself and we set up when i say mash unit you think of the tv program mash it, it wasn't that i mean there was ash so thick that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face it was toxic air you couldn't breathe your eyes were watering, you were coughing nonstop. It was extremely dangerous. There were live electrical wires, there were gas explosions, there were buildings that were collapsing. Unfortunately, many, many dead people. There were shoes, there were hundreds of shoes lying in the ash, and those from the people that were blown up. There was two solid feet thick of paper because at that time, everybody's financial life savings were done on paper, not on a computer. And so it was a financial district. And so it was almost like a snowfield of paper blowing around. And we did what we could. When I say I was really disappointed in myself, that's what I mean. There's such a part of me that wish I had been better trained in mass casualty that I actually knew what I was doing. I didn't. For some reason, people looked to me to be in charge and I didn't know what I was doing. And so if you've ever read Todd Herman's book, Alter Egos, I had to find someone to be stronger than who I was, to be bigger than who I was and who wasn't afraid. And I was terrified. And so I formed an alter ego and on the spot. And this is years before that book was ever written. And my alter ego was an army commando. And with that alter ego, I was able to give orders. I was able to make very hard decisions and kind of run the show as best could be run. I made a lot of mistakes. All of us did there. There were probably people that we could have saved that we didn't. There was one person in particular that I did save and uh, put him in a very dangerous position. He was ultimately killed because part of the building fell on him. I put him in the wrong spot. And so I was there for about almost three days. I don't remember getting home. I remember somebody escorting me to the train station, and I don't really remember anything after that. I do remember waking up on my lawn at home. This would have been Saturday morning. It happened on Tuesday. And so I remember before I fell asleep on my lawn, I remember thinking I was too tired to take a shower and too dirty to lie in my own bed. And so I fell asleep outside. And Kim found me later that evening when she came home from work. 
the next day, so this was 2001, and you have to understand that I was in residency or training for the last 11 years. So I kind of missed the computer revolution, if you will. I was in this tunnel working 120 hours a week as a surgical resident. And Kim and I had just gotten an email set up. And the next day I sat down at the computer and I banged out some of my thoughts. And my thoughts were that as a medical provider who was 11 years into training, I was grossly undertrained in, in civilian mass casualty. And I banged out those thoughts and sent them to the few contacts that we had at that time, which is probably 20 or 30. And there was no such word as going viral in 2001, but it went viral. And so a lot of my thoughts ended up being translated into modern day civilian mass casualty training and Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security thoughts on where we need to take American healthcare in terms of training for mass shootings or explosions or terrorist events. After that, I really went into a slump. I did my best to maintain some sense of normalcy, but I was lost, uh, to be quite honest with you. Some people call it post-traumatic stress syndrome. I just think that I had seen a very higher version of myself at 9-11 with this alter ego. And I saw what I could become, but I knew I didn't have the fundamentals to sustain that. And from that, I think, began my journey into personal development. That's fascinating. Obviously, just living through it, we're old enough to remember. I mean, it's horrific. I was across the country and it hurt me not to be able to be there for the people that were just hurting. I can't even imagine what you went through and experiencing that. And like you're saying, like the PTSD part and creating the alter ego, because I met you after this, obviously. And I have a feeling, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've never said this before, but when I met you, I feel like you were still almost in that alter ego. Oh, absolutely. And so that's one of the things that I talk about in the book is how do you shut it off? And interestingly enough, I don't think I really started to understand what I had gone through until 12 years later. Subsequent to this, I've been part of forming a nonprofit group, which went various places in the world as a strike team to disaster zones. And 12 years later, I led a team, a small strike team into the Philippine archipelago for Super Typhoon Haiyan. And that was another devastating situation. But again, this team, now it wasn't just me, this team was functioning at this higher, higher level. And we were performing under unbelievable circumstances. Then when the team came back and kind of came into normal everyday life, we kind of hit this low as well. And so to get back to your original point, Adam, it's very hard to shut an alter ego off. And when Todd Herman in his book, Alter Ego Effect, talks about all the advantages of alter ego, there are some strong disadvantages of an alter ego in the sense that you don't know how to shut it off. And so for 10 years, I was Commando Karch. And if you talk to my residency mates at that time, they will tell you that. And that just gives me some insight into how I was at that time. Certainly, I know I was this way when my kids were young, and it took a lot of time and just introspection to learn how to shut it off. But think about a teacher. If a teacher goes to work and forms an alter ego of an academic or a teacher during the day, and then they come home and they're constantly lecturing to their kids, that's an example of an alter ego that doesn't shut off. Or how about a coach that coaches football, but their kid is really into playing the flute, right? And so you can see the conflict that could come there when they don't shut the coach, the hardcore coach off when they get home. Or let's think about the drone pilots in Nevada out by where I live at Creech Air Force Base, where they literally go on bombing runs from eight to five, and then they drive back home to Vegas and they eat dinner with their families. 
And so shutting an alter ego off is tough. And now we start to understand why Clark Kent was always in a rush. (laughs) I remember, I don't even know exactly when I met you, but it was at least six, seven, eight years after. I mean, even if we got together, like it was almost 10 years later that I even got to know you, Mike. And I remember your mom, your guy's mom, when just talking about it and being like, if you guys knew Mike before 9-11, he's the most sensitive, caring, like he would stop on the side of the road for a worm that was struggling type of thing. And then this alter ego, it was almost like, I remember your mom, like it was a little bit distressful for her. Like, where's my son? I get it now, like from a totally different perspective. Of course, she wants the heart, right? Like, Uh where's the heart? But Mike's growing into this other part that then he had to go back and reincorporate into the full being. But actually, wow, if I can, very, very recently, I would say in the last two years, she mentions often, my son is back. Oh, yeah, it's happened. But Uh I mean, when you're going through it, you don't know if it's ever going to happen. Like, is this now just a different person? So kudos to you to just know to come back home to yourself. And then use that as a really vital piece of the puzzle that you can call on when needed, but it's not your de facto. That's really good. It's a specialty tool. Exactly. That's what you got to look at an alter ego as. It's a specialty tool and you need to know when to call it up. You need to have the confidence to know that it'll always be there if you need it, but it doesn't need to be used every day. Not that it just... And well, I mean, the fact is your spouse and your kids and people around you probably just want the everyday person most of the time. And you don't live in a mass casual event your entire life. These things happen. We're not wired. Evolutionarily speaking, it's very pivotal to have the ability to go into fight or flight and to compartmentalize and like you're saying, develop that alter ego. But physiologically, the way our cells operate, that's not meant for long term. We need to switch back into that parasympathetic nervous state or else we're not going to, like you're saying, if you're figuring out how to optimize your gifts, it's not from being in a sympathetic nervous state a majority of the time. No way. Right. That's interesting. Do you feel like you were in this alter ego when you were crushed by a monster truck twice on your bike? (laughs) Well, I think that knocked me out of it. And so in many ways, that was the worst and best day of all. And so this was in 2018. And I was just born. So yes. Right. And I was training for Ironman Greece. And it was a unusually warm day in February. And I decided to get on my bike and go for a ride. And the kind of the goal of the day was I was going to ride and we were living on the farm in, in Virginia. I was going to ride about 20 miles into town. And then Kim and the kids were going to come in and we were going to switch bikes and do some mountain biking. I was on my road bike. And Laura, you know this, I've been road biking since I've been probably age 14. Yeah, It's something I do nearly every day, a cycle. And I've never even had a close incident. I heard a very distinctive diesel Cummings engine, which has a very distinctive sound behind me. And mm-hmm. I kind of locked my knees in and braced for the wind effect of a truck like I had done a thousand times before. And this one was different. I didn't really know what was going on, but it felt like I was in a hurricane or a washing machine. I was just getting tumbled over and over again. And what actually happened was I got knocked forward by the truck. He hit me. He was on his cell phone and I got knocked forward and I was aware enough that I had to lean to the right to get out of the way because the shoulder was on the right. But my carbon fiber frame of my bike broke left. And I collapsed underneath his right front tire. And he drove over my chest, was 7,000 pounds, that's 3,500, drove over my chest. And then I got caught underneath his chassis uh, and was left on the road dying. 
And I remember I couldn't breathe. And I also remember from various sports, getting the wind knock out of me. And I remember having telling myself, just wait, it'll come, breath will come. And it didn't. And then I remember this feeling of this is it. I'm going to die right here in the road. And this is the way it's going to go. And there's this incredible feeling of regret that I wasn't going to see my wife again, that I wouldn't get to see my kids grow up. And I just kind of let it go. I let it go. I was like, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to die right here. And this guy came up, he must have seen the accident and he was over my head and he was telling me just to breathe. And so I tried to give it one more chance and I couldn't breathe. And I remember kind of choking and my neck was bulging, my eyes were bulging. And I just remember thinking, this isn't the way I pictured it. And then he told me to breathe short breaths. I was trying to take big breaths. I had a punctured lung. That's what it ended up being. And uh, I tried taking a very short breath and it felt like I was breathing through a cocktail straw. And that was just this amazing boost energy life force. And I started to fight. I'd given up. I really had given up at that point. And I started to fight. And as luck would have it, the trauma helicopter was already in the sky. They had just dropped a patient off. I was in a pretty remote area of southwestern Virginia, right on the West Virginia border. A typical response time would have been 45 to an hour, and I would have been dead. They were there at about 22 minutes. I had 13 fractures. I got taken to a trauma center and lived. And I've been described as many as a blockhead with high uh, Neanderthal content. And maybe it (laughs) took that. Maybe it took that to knock it out of me and to say all this stuff that I've been doing, reading about personal development and studying other people, I haven't really put it into fruition. I haven't really put it together yet. And this was my chance. This is my second chance. And that's when I really kind of put my head down and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get good at this. And Laura, you went through this too, at a much younger age, right? You were 18 or 19. I was 49. And so perspectives were very different. Responsibilities were very different, but it really put me into a different realm of thinking. You guys actually went in divergent paths because I think, Laura, when you got injured, you went into commando phase, commando phase <laughs> and then you start attaching with it like it's the commando phase that got me where I am. I can't let go of this or else I'm going to fall back where, Mike, you were already in commando phase uh-huh. and it set you back free. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's interesting. It was hard coming back. As a surgeon, I broke my back in three different spots. I had six rib fractures, a punctured lit lung. I had pelvic fracture, two clavicle fractures. And to be able to stand to do a surgical procedure for three hours was impossible. And so there was a fear that I was going to lose my career, that I wasn't going to be able to support my family. And that, I think, really motivated me to get better. But I think that there was an element of resilience that you know, I had done a lot of work beforehand studying a lot of the work by a man by the name of Marty Seligman, who's at Penn in terms of resilience. And Marty's work was incorporated into the military in terms of the comprehensive fitness soldier from a mental standpoint. How do they respond to traumatic events in battle? And, and what Marty showed was that, that people, when they experience a traumatic event, played out on a bell-shaped curve. And so maybe about 15%, one five, 15% of people, when they're exposed to a traumatic event, will go into the dark. They'll become emotionally destructive individuals. About 70%, those in the center of the curve, will go through this traumatic event and they will kind of come back to normal life at some time period. But about 15% at the top end of the curve, the far right side of the the bell-shaped curve, become emotionally productive individuals. They go through a transformative phase. 
These are the people that become CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. These are the people that form nonprofit organizations. Because, and if you look at, and Harvard Business Review has done quite a number of studies on this, they call it the crucible event. And so if you look at Fortune 500 company CEOs, many of them, a high statistical percentage of them have gone through some kind of life traumatic event, and that has catapulted them into a transformative behavior. But in order to do that, you have to have certain things and you have to know yourself. You have to have some element of gratefulness of what you have, even if you've been destroyed. There's still some element of gratefulness because I think that does build mental resilience. You have to have positivity. And we can talk about this a little bit later, but I had a lot of interaction with our military, especially special op forces in Iraq. And one thing that really stood out to me about them was they almost had this Viking shield surrounding them in terms of positivity. And the phrase that you heard constantly from these people who were fighting in war was, I'm full of joy. I'm full of joy. And how are you doing today? I'm full of joy, which seems to be like an abnormal response. It's not that how are you doing? I'm doing okay. No, I'm full of joy. And that symbolizes that they are full. They are at capacity. They cannot onboard negativity. There's no room for it. And I think when you recover from a traumatic event like that, you have to kind of have that Viking shield and you have to be full of joy for what you have left. Um, for sure. Leading a healthy lifestyle coming into that accident probably saved my life, to be quite honest with you. And so all that compounded interest, if you will, just like a bank account, compounded interest of eating well and exercising and having a good mental attitude certainly helped me bounce back. And I think for me, always, this is something that I really got from dad, is the love of the outdoors. And the outdoors is where I find peace. The outdoors is where I fight my battles. I write my peace treaties. Usually within the first 15 minutes of being outdoors, I can do that and kind of find that healing power that's found in the solitude of nature. Me too, Mike. That's exactly where I go. I need anything. I need downloads, anything. I just go into nature and feeds it to me. Yeah, that's neat. Really, really cool. There's other things too. Work purpose, getting back to work. In some capacity, this is something I tell my patients all the time after an operation. They say, when can I go back to work? And the typical answer is six, eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is. I'm not sure where those numbers ever came from. Honestly, I think sometimes doctors make them up, but I don't believe in that. I think if you can have surgery or you have something happens in your life, if you can go back to work in some small capacity, be it an hour a day, that's going to be enormously fulfilling. It means you have to wake up to an alarm clock. It means you have to shave. You have to take a shower. You have to get dressed and you have to be somewhat responsible to others. But in turn, those others serve as a positive feedback to you because they're excited that you're there, even though you went through whatever you went through. And it only needs to be 45 minutes or an hour, and then you can build on that, you know, uh -huh. add a half an hour here or there. But it gives you some kind of purpose because otherwise you're left sitting at home in the dark watching soap operas. Yeah, you right? need to start going up and outward, even if it's so small. It's like a little sapling. Like you can't expect much from it, but you got to get up there. You need the structure that supports some outward direction. And then let life kind of pollinate that, like you're saying, like let people respond. And that produces energy, it produces fruit that you can then reinvest, like that compounding interest thing. Even 2% is going to add up to a lot yeah, pretty soon. That's huge. And the other thing is social networking too, right? So that we know that people that are hermits you know, don't do real well. And so one of the problems is when you're injured, like myself after my accident or Laura after yours or somebody who's going through a divorce or whatever it may be, we want to hide our broken wings and we're embarrassed about whatever it is that we just went through. But that's exactly the way to tackle it. 
because that embarrassment pales in comparison to the emotional productivity that can be gained by just admitting that you're human and letting other people's in. Community. It, um, it comes back to what you were saying earlier, Mike, in terms of maybe this is just before we were even it recording. It was before. It was where before. Energy can't be created nor destroyed. It's just how do you transform it? And if you're hiding something because you're too embarrassed about it or you think it's too painful or your subconscious tells you this will wreck us if we bring this out to the surface, you're not allowing the transformation process to even take place and it's just rotting inside. And that's, I think, one of the golden tickets, the magic seed, if you will, of if you want to move past things, you have to be willing to unearth all that and get back in that cyclical flow, even if it's painful, even if it's small, like you're saying, even if it's 10 minutes, you have to start going through the whole process of letting go, being in the stillness, creating a new plan, structuring it, scaling it to the level that you can sustain and just getting in that rhythm again. You have to be vulnerable with yourself and with others. That's the healing process. That's crossing over the Otherwise, bridge. You're you, hiding. you hit a roadblock right. and you crumble. Like you were saying, Mike, you go back into that abyss and some people never really come out of that abyss because their subconscious kind of doesn't let them. Just stagnant. Let them. Right. I have a business coach that I work with. She's over in the UK. Her name is Negan Desmanaza. And she's a brilliant, brilliant lady, high net worth individual. And she said something the other day. I'm just kind of looking through my notes. Um, she said, if you don't have issues, you're not alive. And so everybody has issues, right? <laughs> right. And that's just the way it is. And we, we're kidding ourselves if we're looking at other people and thinking they don't. They do. And so the more you're open to making that open, you'll find other people are willing to help. And so one of the most helpful things that happened to me after my accident is I flew back to Mammoth. I was living on the farm in Virginia, but I was working in Mammoth, which is 3,000 miles away from people that are listening. And I was doing surgery in Mammoth. I was doing surgery in Virginia and teaching a little bit in Virginia. And I flew back to Mammoth. I had most of my operations done here out in California. And a friend of mine called and said, hey, why don't a bunch of guys want to get together and take you out to the bar? And you have to understand that I was in a clamshell brace. I had just had uh, two operations in the last two days. I had a huge drain, which had probably 500 cc's of body fluid coming out of me. My leg was wrapped up. Pelvis was broken. My spine was broken. Just to move hurt. Basically, and- you're ready to party. <laughs> I, I didn't want to go. I didn't want people to see me that way. And I did. I went and I'm really glad it went because it was just amazing. It was probably five or six guys. We just had a great time enjoying life and valuing every second. And that is really what I got out of that accident is that every second counts. We don't want to waste seconds because our time on earth is 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, even 100 years. It's just not that much. And I think that a lot of us, myself included before, we're just kind of wasting time. And whether that on social media or political arguments or debate that just are not healthy or unhealthy conversations, negative thoughts, it's just kind of a waste of time. You know, there's tricks that we go into that in the book as well. There's tricks to get around that negativity. How do you get rid of it and become more productive? So we've mentioned a couple of times in some of the recordings about how community is so important. And because we've gotten so far, especially Americans have gotten so far away from community. We move far away from our families and we don't have that community anymore. And then we think that the social media is bringing in the positive. But the thing is that the social media isn't bringing in the truth, the honest. So when we do show face, and at least for me, I don't want people to feel sorry for me 
no, I don't want them to see weaknesses and then feel sorry. I can't stand when people uh, like sympathy. Yeah, no, I don't. Not at all. Can't stand (laughs) it. And that's not. But if you can break through that barrier and just know that people are there for you and it's a positive energy that's coming towards you, the social media is not a very truthful energy because we're not putting the truth out there. They can't see the truth. It's not a genuine representation. Right. There is a big difference. Yes. There's a big difference in, yes, in being actually immersed in social and actually face to face rather than hiding behind a computer. I think the big thing of what you're saying, like I'm always trying to just see how this makes sense into, first of all, Mike, speaking to you, and I've known this for a while now. I remember being at your guys' place in Virginia and like, I want to write a book with you. Like I want to do something (laughs) because you come from a completely different place than me, but yet I feel very connected to how you're talking, just Mm -hmm. like what this is about, what personal growth entails and the direction it needs to go, I think. And you make a good point. Like if you want to optimize First, like you're saying, you need to separate the pure from the impure, right? You need to know what's worthwhile investing my time and energy into and what isn't, right? But there's also then this other component, which is a lot of people get in this, it's almost like when you went into your alter ego, all of a sudden the alter ego doesn't value downtime maybe, doesn't value releasing because you got to be hard, you got to have a shell. And it's kind of this combination of understanding for me, like the five phases of energy and being able to tap in, like to kind of scan yourself, what's being asked for here? Do I need rest? And if I do, the part of me that's like, no, we can't stop. Sorry, buddy. Like I need to perpetuate a full cycle. I need to finish a cycle so we can grow here. And if you can nail down the separation of the pure from the impure, so you're not wasting your time and then be able to direct your energy in the vector that's appropriate for the moment, which sometimes could be up and out, sometimes could be down and in, sometimes could be nourishing, sometimes could be playful. Like there's just there's a whole spectrum there. I think then you're really setting yourself up for optimization. Yeah, interesting you say that. One of the main themes of the book is that there's at least one thing to learn from everyone we meet and that we meet people for a reason and we meet them for a season. And so what do I mean by that? If you adopt the mentality that there's at least one thing to learn from everybody you meet, then that's the reason. But if you think about it, we're never with one human being for our entire journey We're throughout life. We're, we're never with our parents for the entire journey. We're never with our spouses, our brothers or sisters, our kids, our friends. These are short seasons. And so if you begin to look at them as seasons, how can you maximize those lessons that we learn from, from each person? So I'll give you an example. We had the farm in Virginia, beautiful farm in Walker's Creek in southwestern Virginia. And at that time, my career was extremely busy. I was flying back and forth across the country. I was giving lectures in the U.S. and abroad on mass casualty. I had a medical device that I was taking through the FDA, and I was raising three kids and running a 200-acre farm. And I knew that I had it in control, but I also knew that it was a very fine edge, and it would take very little to knock me off balance. And in fact, the car accident knocked me off balance, but or maybe better into better balance, I should say. But seasons and reasons. There's an old farmer that lived down the road. It was February. And February on the farm is a time of rest. It's a time of kind of uh, getting ready for the spring season, for the hay season and for birthing and everything else. And we were pruning, pruning our fruit trees. And he came by to help us. And he muttered under his breath, pruning a fruit tree is a farmer's way of saying no. And so what can you learn from that? Well, if you think about why do we prune fruit trees, we prune fruit trees, the branches that aren't really growing well so that other things can blossom more. And so if you translate that into a very busy person's life, 
what can you prune in your life to allow other things to blossom more? So in somebody's a busy individual professional, probably by the time they hit 40 or so, and I always think the fourth decade is the toughest season or the toughest decade, but by 40, you have become successful because all you've ever said in your life is yes. Yes to this, yes to that, yes to this. And by 40, it all kind of piles up. And all these little seeds that you have planted have grown into big trees and it's too much to take care of, so to speak. And it starts to compile and life starts to get very, very complex. And this is where most people break down. This is where most marriages break down, right in that decade. And so if you take that simple farmer's advice, that season for that season and the reason, so to speak, if you start to say no and prune the things that just aren't that important and learn to say no, which is a hard thing to do, you can actually focus your energy on the things that are really important and let those things grow. And that fourth decade is kind of that period of watching people do that successfully. You can see what can catapult out of that simple phrase, no. Look at Simone Biles in the Olympics, right? Yep. She said no, right? That's perfect. Mm-hmm. And in, so one of the chapters in the book, I compare a Disney professional to a gymnast. One of my favorite articles of all time is from Harvard Business Review, and it's called The Making of a Corporate Athlete. And it talks about the balance, the spiritual balance, the physical balance, and the intellectual balance that we have to have as a professional. And they make this reference to a gymnast. And so what I did when I read that article was I started looking at videos of gymnasts. And what is it about a gymnast that we can learn from? Well, they stand at a balance beam. They put their hands out, if you think about it, in a balanced position, and they raise their palm up almost in a stop or no position, right? Can you picture mm-hmm, that? Absolutely. At, right? And they have to say no to the balancing forces to stay on that, to stay centered on that beam. They have to have flexibility. They have to have strength. And so there's just a number of things in that analogy you can picture where a professional has to stay balanced. But but pruning is a really important thing. Rest. Let's talk about rest. So on a farm, if we overgraze a field year after year after year, our productivity decreases. But if we let it go fallow for just one season or two, the nutrients come back and we actually get a better product. Right. And so that can be translated into the human sense. And and we have to rest. And part of our society is to just jam our kids with more and more and more and more activities. And we think we're doing them right, but we're actually not. And what if we just let them rest? Mike, can you just repeat that? Because I think Laura needs to really (laughs) open her ears up for that. But I think they need that. That's a weird energy that we translate to them. And then what happens is they accept that as normal. They normalize that. And then they become a professional, first a student, and then a professional in whatever they do. And they don't know how to rest until they nearly implode. And then they have to find it for themselves. And again, that typically happens in the fourth decade. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get them to learn on their own. So they implode. (laughs) And then I say, tough love, honey. Tough love. Why aren't you getting this lesson, (laughs) six-year-old? Why aren't you realizing it's time to rest? Oh, she will when she implodes. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, Mike, we'll wrap this up now. But, I mean, your last two points are so salient. And just to turn the corner, like you're doing it in farming. That's everything the way I see it is this natural, the cycle of life. Like natural order follows that farming pattern. And when you turn the corner from this outward productivity and you get the harvest to know how to prune back, to release and to let yourself, like you're saying, allow fallow grounds lay to allow the replenishment to happen. That is so key for evolution and growth and maturation and reconfiguration. That to me, I mean, I feel like that's the magic seed and you said it perfectly. Mm -hmm. That I think if you can apply that to every aspect of your life, apply it to your relationships, your relationship to self, relationship to people, to your career, to anything, any endeavor you have, if you can allow for that full cycle to die 
ultimately and pair back and reconfigure, you're setting yourself up for optimization. So well said, Mike. I really appreciate your voice today. Thanks. If you have just a little more, maybe two more minutes, I want to talk about how the book ends because that's Yes, please. So why are we doing this? Why are we all working so hard and why are we self-optimizing? And so if you think about it, if I asked you to say something about our parents, Laura, you could say a variety of things, a number of things about Mm -hmm. our parents. And if I asked you to say something about our grandparents, you could say some things, but less. Right. But if I asked you to say something about our great grandparents, it would get a little vague. And if I said, what about our great, great grandparents? You would know nothing about them. And so the point is that within four generations, nobody's going to remember your name, but they will remember the tangible lessons, if you will, Mm -hmm. that you passed on. And this is, what the book is about, about passing your torch. And so the book ends in Nepal. In Nepal, I was part of an international rescue effort for the 2015 earthquake. And my job was to get on a helicopter every morning and we would fly to these very remote regions and we would touch down and we would figure out who was dead, who was living, who needed rescue. And then we would put them on a GPS map. And the next day that village would get food and rice and water. And these villages were extremely remote. I mean, 30 miles on a single track trail, no roads. And we flew into this village in the Annapurna region one day late in the afternoon. And there was geothermal winds kicking up. There was a storm coming in and the pilot was very nervous. And there were two young girls in the back. They were our translators and they were about 16, 17 years of age. And they were singing and crying at the same time. And I was on a radio set and the pilot was on the radio set. The girls weren't. And I said to him, why? Why are they singing? Because it was kind of odd that they were singing like that. And he said to hold back the tears. And I said, well, why are they crying? And he said, because they lost their mother, their father and their brother three days ago and the earthquake. And I paused for a second and I said into the radio, why are they here? And he paused and he said, that's their legacy. He said their mother was a nurse. Their father was a teacher. And he said their purpose now is to pass on what their parents taught them to help. And I said to him next, they're heroes. What are their names? And he said, their names don't matter. He said, it's what they do, what they pass on that matters. And so I think why you have your podcast series, this is why I wrote my book. This is why people go to work every day. This is why we raise our kids the way we do. It's not about us. It's not about our names. It's what we pass on. And that is very powerful, that legacy that we pass on for future generations, making sure that each generation is better than the next. And the only way to do that, it's just like that analogy coming back to the airplane. The only way to do that is to optimize yourself first. Put that mask on. Put the mask on first. That's awesome, Mike. That is. It's beautiful, too. The book is called Tangible Heroes, Mm -hmm. right? Available on Amazon. Yes, Tangible Um, Heroes on Amazon. We're waiting for our copy to arrive, I think, in the next couple of days. Can't wait to read it. And Mike has one on the heels coming out as well, right, Mike? I do. I have books in tandem. The second one is totally different, but it's called Artificial Intelligence for the Everyday Person. So it's everything that I've learned about AI with the robotic surgery that I do, the computer navigational surgery that I do, and businesses that we have and how we're starting to negotiate this new wave, not just from a technical standpoint, but from a very human and ethical standpoint. What are the choices that we make as a society going forward? That's a huge one. Yeah, That's it a is. big can of I, Yeah. And I didn't mean to skip over the tangible heroes. I just wanted to make no, sure no, that yeah. because this one's coming out. By as the well, time this airs, soon. I expect Mike to have a third book. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's um, just the way I roll. I know. All right. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Mike, thank for being you, Mike. on. Guys, that was really great. Yeah. Hopefully thank you guys sure. got something out of this. And until next week, nothing but love. Love you, Mike. 
Take care, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.